Um, hopefully you have notes that say chapter 3, London Baptist Confession of God's Decree, number 4. And I want to encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read a section that we've touched on recently, but I think it will be uh, helpful in terms of the, our direction of thought this morning with respect to uh, of God's decree. And we'll see how things go this morning. The lesson might be just a little bit shorter because uh, looking forward to um, baptismal service today. So got a few logistics to take care of between now and then. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. But um, Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 28 and down through the end of the chapter. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, Sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field." You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And just kind of underscore that sentence in your mind, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And notice especially verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty. Surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true, his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And let us pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the marvelous privilege of the assembly of the saints and that you have um, been pleased to draw us to thyself and show us the glorious eternal salvation that is found in your blessed and pure and holy Son. I thank you for each one that is here this morning and pray that our, our time together would be truly profitable, instructive, and helpful to uh, our minds, to each one that is here. I, I would pray again for the help of your Holy Spirit during these moments together, just to uh, communicate your holy revelation in a way that is honoring to thyself and, and truly um, in a way that our, our, our minds can apprehend it and glory in it. So I, I thank you for um, the time together. We thank you for your word that you have not left us to ourselves. You've given us instruction, and, and might it be pleasing to thee and good for our souls. And we, we commit the time to thee. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Um, this is the fourth study uh, in the third chapter of um, the Confession. Last week we did a kind of a review of what we've emphasized so far. Uh, then we focused more especially on a third objection against the doctrine of God's decrees, uh, namely that it makes God the author of sin. Um, as we continue on into uh, paragraph two, just to kind of keep perspective in, in terms of some, some unity to our thinking process, a proof text that just kind of, um, we've looked at this before, but it's just a text that kind of helps to navigate our way through this, this concept of God's decrees. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And just to um, uh, remind you of some definitions, the eternal plans of God, whereby before the creation of the world, he determined to bring about everything that happens in Robert Shaw. By the decree of God is meant his purpose or determination with respect to future things, or more fully, his determinate counsel, whereby from all eternity he foreordained whatever he should do or would permit to be done in time. And the question from the Catechism, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And we've noticed that they have a, a comprehensive or an all-inclusive dimension. Uh, John Eady, and this is from his commentary on Ephesians, and uh, this is just a complete aside. If you're ever in a used bookstore and you come across a commentary by John Eady, buy it. Um, they're they're kind of hard to come by now, and I've, I found him to be very, very helpful. So anyway, this is a quote from Eady from his work on Ephesians. The plan of the universe lies in the omniscient mind, and all events are in harmony with it. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So comprehensive, no, no event, no circumstance, doesn't matter how minute or uh, how prominent it is, it, it's encompassed in the purpose of God. And you notice that chapter 3 consists of, of seven paragraphs, and uh, Sam Waldron, in his book on the Confession of Faith, has a, kind of a helpful outline, I thought. Uh, Roman numeral one, uh, the general decree of all events, the general decree of all events, that encompasses paragraph one and two. Um, so the overarching theme, the general decree of all events, and then with respect to paragraph one, uh, it's universality, and then paragraph two, it's uncondition unconditionality, unconditionality. So kind of three major thoughts this morning, um, but the overall focus is going to be on the unconditional character of God's decree. So the first, the first point, um, I want to focus our thinking on the, the unconditional nature of God's decrees. Unconditional is the idea of not being limited by any conditions, whether they're absolute or whether they are, they are unreserved. Uh, the paragraph reads like this, uh, although God knows whatever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. So God's decree, it's not based on foreknowledge, but rather his decree determines his foreknowledge. His decree is the, the basis of his knowledge. He knows what will happen because he has determined what will happen. So when you think of this, um, the, the foreordaining power of God, that's foundational. Uh, that's foundational to foreknowledge. Um, so foreordination, for, excuse me, foreordination is, is foundational to foreknowledge. Uh, occasionally, um, I, I enjoy uh, watching 
the replay of a football game, if it's especially two teams I'm interested in, and especially if the team that I kind of like wins. And it takes about 10 or 12 minutes, to go, you know, they, all the highlights of the game. And so if I watch a, a game like that, let's say towards the end, uh, the team I'm rooting for, let's say they're behind by uh, five points and the quarterback has the ball and the opponent's 20-yard line, he throws a touchdown pass to the tight end and for a touchdown, and they win the game. So I know what happened, and I can show that to somebody else, and, and, and before that happens, I can say this is what is going to happen. And that would be knowledge based on hindsight. And there are those who see the decrees of God as something like that, except it's knowledge based on foresight, that God, he looks ahead. Well, he knows what's going to happen. He's omniscient. And so then based on what is going to happen, um, he foreordains events around that. And, and our understanding is the reverse is true. He determines everything is going to happen. And so he's never uh, responding. So when you think of the decrees of God or the foreordination of God, it means his activity, it's causative, it's determinative, it's not reacting, he's not responding. He doesn't have to call an audible, so to speak, at any particular point in time. So he, he is the cause behind these things. The confession and more importantly, we believe the scriptures teach that, that God knows all things because he has determined that they will happen. The remarks of Robert Shaw, I think, are helpful here. He writes, the decrees are absolute and unconditional. He has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future. And the execution of his decrees is not suspended upon any, any condition which may or may not be performed. This is the explicit doctrine of our confession and it is this principle which chiefly distinguishes Calvinists from Arminians who maintain that God's decrees are not absolute but conditional. Okay, in the second place, we'll look at some uh, scriptures that substantiate um, the unconditional character of God's decrees. Um, and we, we see here that the first part of the paragraph in the Confession says, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, and that's of course true, Acts 15, 18, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And then if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 23, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23, and then I'm going to read verses 6 through 13, 1 Samuel chapter 23, and verses 6 through 13. Beginning in verse 6, it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, um, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant was heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my, my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. So then in verse 13, David said to his men, 
about 600 arose and departed, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. So what we, what we see here is that God knows not only what will happen in all supposed conditions, but if David would have stayed there, he knew exactly what would have happened. So, I mean, we know what happened after the fact. We planned something, we know what happened, but we do not know what would have happened if we would have pursued some other plan or some other, some other uh, uh, plan of action. The rest of the paragraph reads, Yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. And you might turn here, we won't spend a lot of time, but turn to Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, and this is a section that's helpful to reflect on as it relates to this particular subject. The, the confession lists several verses uh, to underscore this point. Uh, verse 11, verse 13, verse 16, verse 18. So let, just let me remind you of these. Romans chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 10, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Then verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had, done, uh, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Then verse 13 is another uh, text that is listed. Just as it, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who turns, but on God who has mercy. And then verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. It's just a very helpful section to kind of meditate upon because you see how overtly God's purposes here are being fulfilled. In the doctrine of God's decree with respect to all things, the keynote here is not that God is responding um, to unknown or unforeseen circumstances, but rather he is purposing and he is determining, especially as it relates to uh, Jacob and Esau. So whatever difficulties there are, the interpretation that we find in this section, the tone or the ethos of it is God is purposing, God is planning, God is determining. Verse 11 in and of itself is very helpful just to uh, reread that. Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. So the mood of the whole section here is God is planning, God is purposing, God is accomplishing. And along these lines, I thought uh, Sam Waldron's <coughs> explanation of the section is, is good. Um, he writes, it is not speculative to raise here this question, uh, can God foresee that something will happen before he decrees that it will happen? The straightforward answer to this question is no. Only that which is certain to happen may be foreseen or foreknown. To foresee something is to be certain that it will happen. Since, however, it is God's decree that makes certain all that shall occur, nothing can be foreseen as certain to happen until God decrees that it shall. The idea that one may escape the problems associated with the divine decree by having recourse to divine foreknowledge is groundless. Foreknowledge assumes that some future event is to happen. The question remains, what made that event certain to happen? The only possible answer is God's decree. In the Bible, prophecies and predictions of future events are not viewed as based merely on divine foreknowledge, but as based upon divine decree. Scripture prophecy is therefore viewed 
as, so to speak, the transcript, not of what God foresees, but of what, excuse me, but of what God decrees. Let me just here read some scriptures that I, I think are compelling in terms of making this point. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Acts 3.18, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ should suffer, he has fulfilled. He announced beforehand, it came to pass, the plan or his purpose was fulfilled. Acts 4.27 and 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever thy hand, excuse me, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. So the, the level of malignant opposition that's directed against Christ was, was foreseen and foreknown, all their power, all their scheming, all their plotting, all their collusion, yet they were, they were only able to do whatever his hand had predestined to occur, no more and no less. And again, I find Waldron's here helpful as it relates to um, prophecy instructive. He says, Scripture prophecy, therefore, viewed, so to speak, as the transcript, not of what God foresees, but what of God decrees. Uh, Matthew 26, 51, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew his, out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Now, verse 54, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? Luke 22:37. for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled um, in me. And he was numbered with transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment in john 13 18 i do not speak uh, of all of you i know that one uh, i know the ones i have chosen but it's that the scripture may be fulfilled he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me in john 19 23 the soldiers therefore when they had crucified jesus took his outer garments and made four parts apart for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said therefore to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the activity here is a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, their determination to cast lots for our Lord's clothing is presented here as, as their own free choice and free volition. They're not presented as acting in such a way, well, let's fulfill divine prophecy. But they do act in such a way because their actions were determined by divine prophecy, even though they're not aware of it. Well, then thirdly, and this is kind of the reason I wanted to start with an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Every event that comes to pass is foreordained because God is absolutely sovereign. And I was trying to think of a way to make this point a little bit more powerful because we use the word sovereign a lot. It's the name of the church. It's in the name of the church, but uh, but but really, it's really powerful here because when you think of the decrees of God and He's a planning God, what what really underlies it is is a robust understanding of the character of His sovereignty and to be persuaded of that. That really underlies what we're talking about here. The Confession teaches that all the decrees of God are unconditional hodge rights. 
The only debate relates to those decrees which are concerned with the free actions of men and angels. Calvinists affirm that he foresees um, he foresees them to be certainly future because he has determined them to be so. And we have, we've dealt with already with some of the objections that come into people's minds when you promote a view that God's decrees are comprehensive. They include all, excuse me, include all things. So men are still responsible for their actions. Uh, the source of unholy motives still comes from the, the hearts of sinful men and women. God is not the author of sin. But another factor which really bolsters our view here uh, of God's ordaining all things that come to pass, it's his absolute sovereignty over every circumstance. Hod says, uh, the decrees of God are sovereign because God is the eternal and absolute creator of all things. All things exist and are what they are and possess the properties peculiar to them and act under the very conditions in which they act because of God's plan. Things are, are the way they are because of God's sovereignty and because of, of his plan. And I'll just reread. This is one verse that we read earlier. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of, of, of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou or what hast thou done? So the force of this text, I think, is it's overwhelming in affirming the absolute, unconditional, unlimited, unique sovereignty of God. He created all things. Um, it's his universe. It's his world. It's his prerogative to do whatever he wants with whomever he wants and all for the display of his glory. So every single person uh, in every place at all times live and exist and have their being by, as a result of God's action and God's sovereign work. By the way, when I read a verse, and part of it sounds like the King James Version, it's because it is. Sometimes I'm reading the New American Standard, and I skip. I don't know if you ever have that problem or not. The King James kind of pops in there. So I, I know how to read the New American Standard Version of the Bible, but when you see some other word pop in there, it's just, it's just from the King James Translation. So you can put that in whatever category you want. But, but let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you this morning that we serve such a, a glorious, holy, powerful God that is, is accomplishing all of your purposes all of the time. We, we thank you that no event takes you by surprise. We, we thank you that no eventuality takes you by surprise. We, we thank you that you are always, in every circumstance, in all places, in all times, uh, advancing your pure, holy kingdom, affecting the election uh, of, of your people, the salvation of your people. We, we thank you for the, the revelation that you have given us. I pray our time this morning that you would be pleased to take what we have considered, apply it to our own souls for your honor and your glory, bolster our, our confidence and our trust in thee as the, a holy God, a good God, a wise God, but also a ruling, reigning God. Father, we pray that um, our fellowship uh, between now and the morning service will be precious. We pray for your blessing as we would meet together this morning. Thank you for the, the, the tremendous privilege of, uh, of baptizing those who have been converted. We pray for your blessing on that as well. Just thank you uh, for the assembly of the saints this morning. Just continue to bless our time together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.